Uh, so we last week began a series on the book of Philippians. So this is a book written by the Apostle Paul. It's a missionary newsletter to a group of Christians in the Roman city of Philippi. And what we saw in this letter is that Paul explains that, that he had found what many people, and especially I think many young adults, are looking for. And that is his purpose. Anyone here tonight remember, uh, what are they called? Bookstores? You know, remember that old hallowed stone-aged institution, you know? Uh, it's okay. If you were to walk into any bookstore, they do still exist. One of the biggest sections that you're going to find is the self-help section. This is more than an $11 billion industry. And what the self-help section is going to tell you is that the way to find your purpose is to look within. So what you do is you, you ask yourself, what are your dreams? What are your goals? What is it that fulfills you? That's where the world says your sense of purpose comes from. And Paul says, wrong. Wrong. Life only makes sense. Life only has purpose when you realize that it's not about you. And he's saying, look, look, don't you realize that if you live for your dreams and if you live for your happiness, if you live for your comfort, you know, you're signing up for a rat race. And that, that even if you get all the things that you're after, like even if you, you win the race, you're still going to wind up feeling empty because you're made for something bigger than that. And Paul says in this letter that he's found what it is. And he says that what the thing is, is Jesus. It's Jesus. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, one of the most famous uh, theologians, uh, thinkers in the whole history of Christianity, uh, up until his, th- uh, his 30s, St. Augustine um, was, was not a Christian. In fact, he lived a lot of his early life as a sex addict. But then one day, St. Augustine found Jesus Christ. And he went on to become one of the most amazing uh, figures in all the history of Christianity. And one of the most famous things that he wrote was this. He said, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Let me say that again. He says, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So the question is, what would that kind of life look like? What would that kind of life look like? And Philippians gives you the answer. Uh, What it shows is it shows you that living a life for Christ, living a life for the gospel, that that is the path of true joy. And uh, as we're going to see tonight, that's true even in suffering. Even in suffering. So last week, um, you might remember, I put up an outline of this book on the screen. Um, just out of curiosity, can anyone remember anything at all from, from the outline? If you do, just, just shout it out. Jesus. 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 Yeah, great. <laughs> always count on uh, you, Will. Uh, thank you. The advance of the gospel, yeah. So the key verse of this book is Philippians 1, verse 12, where it says... I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so if you were to give an outline of this book, here's what you could, here's what you could say. Chapter 1, Paul's going to show us the gospel advancing through suffering. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Chapter 2, the gospel advancing through service. Chapter 3, the gospel advancing through standing against false teaching. And then chapter 4, the gospel advancing through sacrifice. So, suffering is the chapter that we're in tonight. And so, I'm going to... Oh, thanks. 
I'm going to read this uh, section here. Philippians chapter 1, uh, this is uh, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 down to verse 26. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me when I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that all of you, uh, convinced of this, I know that I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Yeah. Thanks, Will. You know, I guess they have uh, Sioux chefs when uh, you are cooking. Maybe they can be like Sioux preachers. You guys can uh, be that tonight. I don't know. What what a stupid joke. I'm so sorry. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Um, Man, you guys, I have such a dumb, terrible sense of humor. Just hang out with my brother. He's the funny guy in the family. Okay. Anyway, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage tonight um, in three ways. Number one, this passage says something to us about the power of suffering. The power of suffering. Number two, it's going to tell us something about the puzzle of suffering. And then number three, it's going to say something to us about the pioneer of suffering. So there's the power of suffering, the puzzle of suffering, the pioneer of suffering. This first thing, the power of suffering. I mean, just as I get into this, I I want you to know this passage, this passage um, has been just strongly challenging to me. Um, you know, they, they say that one of the best parts about getting to speak on a part of the Bible is that you get to actually dig into it most. And sometimes when that happens, it begins to, it begins to grab you and, and, and kind of stir things in you. This passage has been stirring me. Because what it says is so absolutely upside down compared to the way that we normally live. And I want to show you that tonight by pointing out two surprises in this passage. So number one... One of the first things that Paul says repeatedly in this letter, or even in this chapter, is that he's writing to the Philippians while he is in chains, is the phrase. 
And this refers to the fact that when Paul is writing this, like he literally is in Rome, uh, and, and he's on trial for his faith, waiting for the emperor to pass judgment on his case. So he's, he's literally in chains. He's chained to a Roman soldier so that he can't go anywhere. Now, now I don't know if you, you uh, have read many of Paul's letters, but when you read about Paul, you realize that this was a guy who didn't sit still. I mean, he was constantly traveling all over the world to preach the gospel. And so, you know, to use a metaphor that I'm sure all of us can now relate to, um, in this letter, Paul is in quarantine. He's in quarantine. He can't go anywhere. <laughs> Can I give an amen? <laughs> Actually, don't give an amen to that. That's the, <laughs> who wants to be in quarantine? No, but he, he, he's, he's chained to a Roman soldier. He can't go any, anywhere. So what that means is that his tireless travel and all of his missionary movements have been brought to a standstill. Hence why it is such an enormous surprise here that what Paul says is that the gospel has gone absolutely viral. And let me show you how he says this uh, by just pointing out a couple of things here in the text. So, so first evidence that the gospel has gone viral, look at verse 13. He, he has this little comment. He says, the gospel has spread to the palace guard. Now, now, what I think is probably happening here, you know, Paul's chained to a Roman soldier, and Paul can't stop talking about Jesus, and so he's literally witnessing, too, all these Roman soldiers that he's chained to. You know, the one guy goes off shift, and uh, and then the next guy comes on shift and Paul witnesses to him. And then the next guy comes on shift and Paul witnesses to him. And before you, before you know it, there's been like this little miniature revival just among Paul's guards. So, so number one, the gospel spread to the palace guard. Number two, he also says that it's become manifest not just to them, but he also says to everyone else. Now, what does this mean? Uh, now, what, what some commentators think this means um, you know, there's no way that we can know for sure, but, but I think this is actually a pretty reasonable hypothesis, is that what Paul is talking about here is actually nothing less than all of Rome. So, you know, think about this. Most criminals are tried for a criminal charge. You know, what, what's Paul here for? He's not being tried for being a murderer or being a thief or being a, you know, any of those things. You know, he's, he's being tried because a bunch of the Jewish leaders who were mad at him, uh, you know, kind of got him to be accused of a whole bunch of things that weren't true, and one thing led to another, and then the Romans got involved, and here's Paul in jail. And this would have been such a strange, this would have been the strangest case anyone had ever seen. And it was probably so strange and so bizarre to all of the, you know, all the, the, the Romans that, that you know, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that, that they would have kind of become interested. Who, who is this, this guy? This is the weirdest criminal we've ever heard of. You know, for all we know, Paul could very well have been front-page news if they had that kind of thing. And so when he says that everyone else is, has, is now hearing about Jesus, what he's saying is that precisely because he is, like, literally, like, stuck, he's in quarantine, he can't move anywhere, that because of that, the gospel has gone more viral than it's ever, been bef- ever gone before. And like I said last week, like, that is just as true in the year 2020 as it was in the year 50 AD, or whenever this was written. Like, if, if you are, are, are convinced that, that this is a time where the church is in retreat, I just want you to know that I think it's actually the opposite, that there's never been a time in my lifetime that I can remember where there are greater opportunities for the people of God to advance and move forward boldly. And then finally, one third little evidence here. Look at this. Look at verse 14. So he's saying that, look, this is not just going viral among all the non-Christians. Like, this is going viral among Christians. He says, because of my chains, 
most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Okay, pause there for a minute. Uh, here's a question for you. Um, we live in a world of a lot of different movements. There are political movements. Uh, there are social movements. There are um, social media movements. <laughs> um, actually, one of those right now is an anti-social media movement. I don't know if you guys have seen um, The Social Dilemma. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. It'll, it'll, it'll... Here's what you should do. You should watch that movie on a Friday night because it'll wreck your, 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 your life and you'll never want to touch a phone ever again. You can have a completely phone-free weekend. It'll be great. <laughs> anyway... Let me ask you a question, though. Let me ask you a question. What ignites a movement? What ignites a movement? My answer for you, I don't know if I'm actually right about this, but but I think this is true, that uh, a lot of movements are started because of one lone nut. One lone nut. You know, think about John the Baptist. He's Jesus' hype man. He's the guy who shows up before Jesus to kind of get things ready for Jesus to come. John the Baptist was a weird guy. I mean, he dressed in weird ways. He ate camels. Uh, he, he dressed in camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. And yet this starts this movement where tons and tons of people began to come to him to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, to be prepared for Jesus to come. He was a lone nut, and he was the way that God started this movement. Or here, here's another example for you. Has anyone here ever been to the city of Rome before? Okay, so actually a couple of you. Okay, so if you've been to Rome, I've never been to Rome, but you know, I'm sure that um, for those of you who've been to Rome, you can confirm this for me. One of the most prominent buildings in the city of Rome is the Colosseum. The Colosseum, which was the location of the gladiatorial games. And this was one of the most well-known Roman pastimes. It was to attend the Colosseum and to watch as one human being literally would slay their fellow man. And it's estimated that over the course of the centuries, there were 400,000 people who died in that one arena. And that was not the only arena. And many of those were actually Christian martyrs. That was one of the Romans' favorite ways to to kill Christians was to feed them to the lions in, in the Colosseum. One day, this was sometime near the end of the 5th century, there was a Christian monk, and he came from a really distant part of the, of the Eastern Roman Empire, a guy named Telemachus. And Telemachus felt impelled to go to Rome. We don't exactly know what brought him to the city, but we know that sometime during his stay in Rome, he found himself watching the gladiatorial games. You know, we don't know what was passing through his mind, but as he watched the carnage and the slaughter you know, whether he was seized by some kind of passion, you know, by, by the, the horror that he saw. What we know is that Telemachus broke through the crowds and he stepped down into the arena and he endeavored to halt the gruesome slaughter while the entire crowd looked on. What happened next was that the crowd got so enraged that this presumptuous Christian would ever, ever possibly think to interfere with their entertainment that they stoned him to death. And yet his death was so inspiring and it so galvanized the Roman emperor that he put an end to the gladiatorial games. And that was how six centuries of slaughter came to a stop. So here's this one man who, you know, as it were, stands up in the heart of the ancient world and says, 
stop. Stop this madness. And it changed an entire empire. And the question I want to ask you tonight is when people look at your life, are they encouraged to speak the word of God more boldly? Are they encouraged to actually do what Rachel did and and, and take a step of obedience? You know, what do people look at when they see your life? What Paul's able to say is that as a result of what God has done for me, when all the other guys, all the other Christians look at me, they're encouraged to, to, to be more bold, to be more daring in standing up for Jesus. And he says that this is the result not just of his life, but this is actually the result of his suffering. And the message that this communicates, if you were to take all of this and put it together, is that some of God's greatest work he does in the darkness. Some of God's greatest work he does in the darkness. This is the power of suffering. Paul's change advanced the gospel. Persecution grows the church. All throughout Christian history, there's always been a pattern that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if you were to take that and, and, and bring it into the present day, what that means is that the most fruitful seasons of your life may be the ones that are the most confusing, the most disappointing, and the most painful. And no one knew this better than Paul. You know, remember, remember what he writes in the book of Romans? I probably went through a series in the book of Romans about a year or so ago. There's a part at the very end of the book, before any of this has happened, and he's talking to them about how he really, really wants to go to Rome. And let me just read what he says here. This is very end of the book, chapter 15. He says, Since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I enjoyed your company for a while. So, you know, he's basically saying, like, look, I've got it all planned out. I'm just going to take a nice little brisk jaunt through Rome, kind of do a little vacation, stop over there for a little while, and then I'm going to go to Spain. That's what I'm planning on. Now, what actually happened? <laughs> what actually happened, if you, if you read the book of Acts, if you read the book of Philippians, is that, that Paul shows up in Jerusalem. He gets falsely accused. He gets in prison for more than two years. He's finally taken to Rome by way of a shipwreck. And then he's in prison for at least two more years. And what we find out is the result of all of that is Philippians chapter 1. That, that as a result of all the stuff that happened that Paul didn't plan for, that he wasn't looking for, that he didn't want to have happen... It was a greater victory for the gospel than he could have ever imagined. Now, why? The reason is that God is a God who's light. The Bible says God is light. And where does light do its greatest work? In the darkness. The scenes of greatest darkness is where God paints some of his most beautiful masterpieces. And that also means another thing for us as well, which is that if suffering is truly where God does some of his greatest work, then if you want to see the gospel advance, you have to be willing to suffer. If you want to see the gospel advance, then you have to be willing to suffer. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross... And follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are some other words 
of Paul. This is from 2 Timothy. He says, do not be testified, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And a little later, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say might, it doesn't say may, it doesn't say probably, it says will be persecuted. Paul recognized the power of suffering. He wasn't afraid of it. He didn't shy away from it. And he knew that following Jesus meant not that everything would get better, you know, not that your steps would be lighter, your teeth would be wider, your smile would be brighter. Paul knew from the very first day that he was a Christian, because Jesus told him so, that when Christ calls a man, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. So, how's that for a first point? Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you there. Because look, look, uh, you know, it's all very well to say that suffering is, is dynamic, um, that God can use it. There's a puzzle here, though. Uh, and and, and the, the puzzle is, okay, Paul, you know, like, I, like I get that, that, that suffering, you know, God can accomplish things through it. But, but, but how, how is Paul able to actually say the very specific words that he says here? So, you know, notice that when he writes about his suffering, um, you know, there, there are two things that he does. One thing is something he doesn't do. He doesn't complain about it, number one. And then number two, he actually is celebrating it. So did you notice? Uh, look at verse 18. The word he uses to describe his mood in, in this verse is the word rejoice. He actually uses it twice. And in fact, the words uh, joy or, or, or rejoice... Uh, they're in this letter 12 times. And at one point um, in this letter, Paul actually alludes to the fact that uh, he's not just in chains. He's, he's actually potentially staring down the barrel of death. You know, he knows that, you know, look, my case is going to get tried. And, and one of the outcomes here is that I could be sentenced to die. And do you notice what his reaction is to this? Look at verse 23. He says he's excited. He says, I desire, or some translations say, I long to depart and be with Christ. Now the word depart means to die. I mean he's saying like I actually am, 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 am not. He said I'm not not stoked to die. And the question is the puzzle is how can this be? You know how can this be? You know I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but this is this is not what our culture thinks. Um, you know if you if you were to think about what our culture thinks about death, it, it either won't talk about it, or if it does talk about it, it tries to talk about it in the most you know, kind of veiled terms, because to actually acknowledge death is one of the scariest things you can do, but not for Paul. So the question is, uh, Paul, are you mentally unstable, or is there something you're actually saying here um, that, that, that explains why you're able to say what you say? So let's look at the puzzle. Let's look at the puzzle. First thing, first thing, is that the puzzle that Paul touches on here is a universal one. It's a universal one. Every world religion and every culture has always had to wrestle with the question that Paul's wrestling with, which is the question that many have called the problem of evil. You know, the, 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 the question of, of whether uh, it makes any sense for there to actually be a good God um, and suffering at the same time. Um, and on top of that, there's also the practical side. There's the practical side of, well, how do you actually get through evil and suffering? Um, and in recent years, it's been pointed out that we actually live, um, our modern Western culture that we live in, is arguably the least equipped to deal with 
with this question. That if you were to take a survey of every culture that's ever been, our culture might rank at the very top for cultures that are unable to really, truly deal with pain and suffering. Now, why? Uh, the reason for this is that in some cultures, uh, the, the, the goal of human life is oriented away from the self. So think about traditional cultures. In many parts of the world that are still kind of more traditional, the goal in life is to preserve the family. You've got to preserve the family unit. And suffering uh, can sometimes function to push the family together. And so suffering, you know, it's hard, it's challenging, but there's actually, there can be a meaning to it. And it's to preserve the family. Or think about in Buddhist cultures, uh, suffering can help you achieve the ultimate goal, which is to obtain enlightenment. So uh, I don't know if we've got any, like, religion majors in here. Um, but I remember learning about this when I was in school, that, that, that Buddhism started with a guy um, named, and he went on to be called the Buddha. Imagine that. And, and the Buddha realized that suffering actually opens up your eyes to, to reality. So he, there, there's this story about the four sights of the Buddha, that one day he's walking along as a young man, and he sees an old man. And he realizes, oh my gosh, everyone ages. And then he's walking along, he sees another person, he sees a, a sick man. And he realizes, oh my gosh, everybody's weak. And then he sees a third man, as someone who, it's a dead body. And he says, oh my gosh, everyone dies. And then finally, the last person he sees is a holy man who's living a life of self-denial. And the Buddha says, this guy's figured it out. Like, here's a guy who actually is trying to understand the truth. That's what I want to do. And out of that came, came, came Buddhism. And so for him, suffering actually pushed him toward ultimate meeting, which was to know... Uh, you know, what really is real. But in our modern Western culture, that's not the goal. The goal in our modern Western culture is happiness. Happiness. And suffering is nothing if not an interruption to happiness. And so if you put those together, what that means is that suffering can only serve to destroy all of your hopes and all of your dreams. You know, death is not a pathway to something greater. It just, it's the end. And if modern Western secularism is true, then if you're intellectually honest, you have to admit that all suffering is meaningless. And, and some of our most honest thinkers have actually told us this. So uh, this is something that a guy named Bertrand Russell once said. Bertrand Russell was one of the most famous atheists of, of about 100 years ago. And uh, this is so raw and so honest. Listen to this. He says... Man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Only with the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, what's his point? It's kind of, a, kind of a doozy, that one. His point, though, is that, look, you know, if we're just a cosmic accident, then, then nothing that we do, you know, nothing that we achieve, nothing that we suffer can have any meaning at all. But Christianity comes along and says something radically different. 
Uh, now, why? What's different about it? Well, there's two, two reasons I want to point out to you. Number one, you, you could call the redemptive reason. Uh, so, so one of the teachings that's found all throughout the Bible is that God is able to take what is evil and he's able to miraculously work it for what is good. Uh, so when you think of this, uh, one of the most well-known stories to illustrate this is the story in the Old Testament of the man Joseph. So anyone, anyone know this story? Just put up a hand if that's a little familiar story of Joseph. Yeah, so, you know, the story, just kind of recap. Joseph is a young guy, and he's sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, who don't like him. While in Egypt, uh, Joseph is falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's thrown into prison. Uh, he languishes in prison for many years. As a result of being in prison, he catches the attention of Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph is discovered by Pharaoh to have the God-given gift of administration. The Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of famine relief for his entire empire. And as a result of, of Joseph's gift, of Joseph's skill, all of the Egyptian empire and all of the neighboring kingdoms are saved from seven years of starvation, which then leads Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt to buy food to survive the famine, which then leads Joseph's entire family to be reconciled and to be delivered from certain death. Now, what's the point? Joseph actually summarizes the point for you in the very end of the story. He says to his brothers, who are a little freaked out that, man, you know, we just like threw this guy into a pit. We sold him into slavery. Like now that we're, you know, all <laughs> one big happy family again, I'm a little nervous that maybe he's going to, you know, kind of stab us in the back as revenge. And Joseph says, no, 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 no. Like, don't you realize what God's been doing here? God has been redeeming. And he says, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Now that, that, that kind of contains two truths in it. What that means, first of all, is that evil is evil. Christianity does not diminish that evil is real and evil is wrong. We live in a world that doesn't like to talk about sin. In fact, you might go to some churches and never even hear the word sin because it's considered too offensive. And yet, every single one of us ought to be thankful that the Bible calls a spade a spade and, and is not afraid to talk about sin. Because in a world like ours that only knows how to talk about therapy and only knows how to talk about, about brokenness, and you know, not that those things aren't valid and real, they are. But we no longer have an actual way to describe what is wrong with us and why. The Bible alone is bold enough to actually tell us that the problem is such a big problem that God literally had to step down into our universe and die. That the problem is not that we wreck our own lives and that we destroy our own dreams. The problem is that all of us are rebels at heart who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And that that's a, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. It was such a big deal that Jesus had to pay an infinite price to address it. And so, so on the one hand, this says evil is evil. But it also says that in, a, in like a miraculous way that God's able to take what's evil and work it for good. Now, now, this is totally different than what the secular world says. And this is totally different, by the way, than I think what a lot of the church world says. So, okay, over here on this side, we've got the church world. So church world says... You know, you got to suppress it. Like, if you're going through a hard time, you, you just kind of put on a big smile when you're with all your church friends, and you say, oh, man, times are really hard, but God is going to teach me something. 
You know, isn't it great? Like, God's going to teach me something through, like, this loved one who passed away. Or, or, yeah, like, the Christian strategy, the church strategy is is suppression. Um, and, and And the Bible says no. Like, evil is evil. Like, don't minimize it. Don't trivialize it. It's okay to weep. It's okay to weep. Sometimes the most worshipful thing you can do before the Lord is to weep. But as it says in Psalm 126, you don't just have to weep for no purpose. You actually can sow your tears. You can sow your tears, meaning that everything that you pray to God, he's going to somehow take and work that to good. And we might not ever see that in this life. But the promise that the Bible gives is that one day everything sad is going to be made untrue when Jesus returns. And that there is nothing that has ever been taken from you in this life that will not be completely healed, completely restored, and completely paid back in full. So that's the, the, the church approach on this side. And then, okay, this side of the stage. So the church strategy is suppression. The secular strategy is depression. You know, it's the whole Bertrand Russell thing. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> Which leads to cynicism, by the way, because, you know, you, you have to kind of protect yourself against disappointment. So just, you know, just become a cynic. But the gospel actually lets you have real hope. It says there's real hope that God actually can bring good out of evil. And in both cases, it doesn't end there because, as it says in another place, weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God works all things together for good. Even all your sin, he works together for good. Even all your evil, he works together for good. As it's been said before, God can only give Satan enough rope to hang himself. God can only give Satan enough rope to hang himself. Did you realize that there is literally nothing that the enemy can do that does not usher back the return of Jesus? It's all pointing to that. And nothing can thwart him. So, uh, that's not the only reason, though. Remember I said there are two reasons? So, you know, there's the redemptive reason. That's one of the reasons why Paul kind of sounds like a nutcase when he's talking about suffering. Like, Paul, you know, how can you say this stuff? How can you be full of joy when you talk about this stuff? There's one more reason, and I'm going to land the plane with this. Um, so, so uh, look at verse 21. Verse 21, just to conclude this here. Uh, he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, now, again, this, is, this seems insane. How, you know, Paul, you know, you're not saying death is neutral, you're saying death is gain. You know, what suffering could be greater than death? Paul's response is that the reason he can say this is because, reason number two, he knows the pioneer of suffering. We've seen the power of suffering. We've seen the puzzle of suffering. And then the, the solution to ultimately unlock the puzzle is the pioneer of suffering. Because the gospel says that God didn't just look down on our suffering and shrug his shoulders and say, too bad for them. The heart of God looked down at a world that he had created, that he had given everything to, and that had spat in his face so that we could be God rather than allowing God to be God. He looked down. He came down in the person of his son, and he didn't just come down, but he lay down his life on the cross and stepped himself into the middle of the absolute dead center of all of our sin and evil and suffering and blackness 
and took all of that upon his shoulders. And the reason that Jesus did that is because he loves us. He didn't say, in order to earn my love, you have to earn it. He said, I can't love you any more than I already do. And the cross is the proof of that. And just imagine how this might change your life. You know, imagine what it might mean to actually know this pioneer of suffering. And of course, he's the pioneer because there's no suffering that, that, that any person could ever conceive of greater than what Jesus went through. It wasn't just that he bore physical sufferings on, on, on his own body, although that would have been painful enough. It was that the worst suffering was a suffering that no one could even see, that he experienced a kind of cosmic suffering. I mean, the, the sum total of everything wrong and sinful in the universe on his shoulders. When Mel Gibson uh, made the movie The Passion of the Christ, he insisted that his be the hands that hammer the nails into Jesus' hands. Because he knew that it was because of his sin that he hung there. Now think about how that might change your life. Um, and, to, and to do this, here's, here's just one example. You know, imagine that you're a billionaire. And imagine that one day you're at a restaurant, and you just had a really good meal, and you're a billionaire, so you probably went to a really, really nice restaurant. You know, like, I'm not just talking Anthony's, which is, like, probably the nicest restaurant we've got here in Gig Harbor. I'm talking, like, I don't know. El Gaucho. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> and imagine that, you know, as you're, you're leaving the restaurant, you, you, you know that you've got uh, 10, uh, like, 10 uh, $100 bills in your, in your wallet. And you're feeling really generous. So you decide, I'm going to leave a $100 bill as the tip. Now, you, uh, you, you walk out of the restaurant, and later you're thumbing through your wallet, and you realize, wait, I thought I had 10 of these $100 bills. I only see eight. You know, oh my gosh, I must have accidentally left them $200. You know, well, oh my gosh, you know, what was I thinking? Well, now, wait a minute. You're not, you're not going to say that because, you know, look, you're a billionaire. Like, uh, I actually have heard it said that Bill Gates makes, you know, if Bill Gates were to drop a $100 bill, it would take him longer to pick up that $100 bill than it would actually take him to earn another $100. So, so just imagine that that's the kind of wealth you have, and you're like, oh shoot, I accidentally overpaid. Like, you're not going to go back to the restaurant and kind of like shake your, your, your waitress by, by, by the scruff of the neck and say, you know, give me back my $100. I mean, you're, you're, you're a spiritual billionaire. And you're going to realize, like, well, you know, this, this is barely a scratch. It's barely a scratch. Now, look, this is what it means to know the pioneer of suffering. Uh, you, you know, like, if, if you really kind of lived your life as though, you know, man, what can, what can scratch me? Like, I have something that completely tips the scales so that suffering is barely weighs more than a grain of sand. You know, that would mean that you would have an inner strength in the face of trial. It would mean that you'd have a quiet confidence when people oppose you or snub you. And if Jesus is our pioneer of suffering, then that is exactly what we have. The gospel says that God wasn't aloof from our suffering, but he actually entered into us with it. And that means that when we suffer, he's with us, which means that when we suffer, we get him. There's a variation on what the Bible teaches that is not what the Bible teaches at all. It's called the prosperity gospel. Um, some of you might have seen the movie American Gospel, which I really recommend to you. And it talks about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that if you believe in Jesus, then you know, God's going to give you a bunch of money, he'll give you a, a nice car, a nice house, maybe a nice 
husband or wife. And that basically God is just a vending machine to give you stuff. I want to tell you why that is so demonic. And the reason that it's, it's, it's wrong, it's evil, it's demonic is that it's saying that the most valuable thing that God could offer you in life is all of his blessings. The most valuable thing that God can offer you in life is himself. And sometimes it's only through suffering that you can get that. Uh, some of you uh, might remember, we've had a guy speak here before named Kurt Mack. Kurt is the pastor over at Peninsula Christian Fellowship. Uh, Kurt, a couple of times, has told me a story. There was a time when uh, Kurt uh, got to spend some time with a man um, who was a Chinese pastor and had been suffered and, and tortured uh, for his faith while he lived in China. And some of the people who were there listening to this man's story um, asked him what it's like now to, to be on the other side of all that he went through. And this pastor began to get emotional. And he, you know what he said? He said, I almost miss it. I almost miss it because I've never felt closer to Jesus. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to conclude for us in a really weird way. Um, if, if, if you read this, if you hear what I'm saying about Jesus being worth you know, giving everything you have, suffering everything that you could suffer in order to get him, and if that doesn't make sense to you, then I just want you to know that I am not capable of persuading you otherwise. Because you never are going to truly know how good and, and, and all-satisfying Jesus is unless you've met him. You know, when Paul says to live is Christ, you know, he's basically saying life is Jesus. That is what life really means. Now, that might come across as Egyptian hieroglyphics if you've never met Jesus. But just look down the history of, of, of Christian after Christian who has lived a testimony like this Chinese pastor to see that he's life itself. And so I, I, can't, I, I can't persuade you of that. Um, I can't just by standing up here uh, make some kind of penny drop so that, that, that suddenly you'll experience that. But what I can do is I can close us tonight in prayer. And if you're here tonight... And you look at what Paul says and you feel like, I don't know God in this way. I mean, I don't think I've ever thought about God as being so all-satisfying that I could say, as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if that's the case, I just want to invite you to pray with me. And I'm going to pray that God would just help us take one step closer to him, that we might come to taste and to see that he is true life. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm just a guy on a stage. I can't, um, there's only so much more that I can say um, to prove the point of what this passage is all about. Oh, but Lord, there's just such um, a tantalizing signpost here that, that there actually is a person that all of our longings, all of our desires are ultimately pointed to. So, Father, we cry out by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to have a newfound passion for you, to taste
taste and see that you are the one who satisfies our souls. So that we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name.